0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. There's a childhood memory Fred Musquita just can't shake. A memory of grief. These elder women would always sit together.
1: Once I asked my grandmother, you know, why are they crying? And she said, they're thinking of a time long ago
0: now, Mosquita has helped shape the new Sand Creek Massacre exhibit at History Colorado. We'll tour it with the lead curator, who very much deferred to tribal leaders. They brought us in and
2: they told us that we have decided, we the tribal representatives have decided, there should not be any bullets, there should not be any actual weaponry of any kind represented in this exhibit because it is too traumatizing and it could cause too much pain and hurt for Cheyenne and Arapaho people.
3: Thank you for supporting CPR. Every day, your membership is put to good work serving communities across our state. You ensure that news and music remain freely available to Coloradans everywhere. Your generosity helps make it all possible.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. It is the deadliest day in Colorado history, November 29, 1864, and the Sand Creek Massacre is the subject of a new exhibit at History Colorado. But it is not just the story of the more than 200 Arapaho and Cheyenne slain by U.S. government troops. It is a meditation as well on the tribe's history, their culture, and their present-day lives. I will tour this show shortly with the lead curator, but we'll begin with Fred Musquita, an Arapaho coordinator for the Cheyenne-Arapaho tribes. He helped shape this new exhibit and joined us by phone from El Reno, Oklahoma. Fred, thank you for being with us. I, I know that for you, the Sand Creek massacre is family history. Uh, will yes. you will you tell us what that connection is?
1: Yes, I'm a descendant from uh, a little boy who escaped Sand Creek. You know, his older sister. They both ran, and she took him and probably saved his life. And and his name was Mixed Hair. M-I-X-E-D-H-A-I-R.
0: Mixed Mixed Hair. hair. Mm -hmm. Yes. And given the level of brazen cruelty, given the massacre, you use the word genocide. it It is a notable thing that a boy and girl even were able to escape, isn't it? Yes, it is. Because
1: the way I understand it is that their mother is the one that cut the back of that teepee and told them to run through the back of the teepee because um, they were firing upon the camp. Of course, nobody knows for sure, but I believe that they were shooting high, and that's why all the children were able to escape. They were shooting course, at a, at
0: adult height, you're saying?
1: Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. And, and so they were able to run out the back of the camp, and, and they ran down the, the creek bed,
0: or I should say up. You know, in my circles, uh, there is the Holocaust in the background. And for some, there are families that just don't talk about the Holocaust experience. For others, there are families that are very open about it. Uh, What about your family? Did they talk a lot about the Sand Creek Massacre? Was that something you heard growing up?
1: The first, you know, I would see these elder women would always sit together you know, like in town or in different places, so they would all sit together. My grandmother was one of these. And at times, you know, we'd see these elder women crying. And so I I once asked my grandmother, you know, why are they crying? And she said, they're thinking of a time long ago. We don't talk about it. She told me, don't think about it. And so that's the way it was. And then later on, when like when it became, it started to come back, then you would start to hear these stories. You know, sometimes one of them would tell a story sitting about one of their relatives. And so this is where it started to kind of pick up. There was something that happened, but it, it was hard. They wouldn't very talk to it very much or in open. It was among themselves. And of course, those young children would always sit, you know, on their lap or around them and this is what we'd hear them speaking. You know, a lot of times they spoke in the Rappo language only.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And so then when my mother, you know, as I grew up, you know, I asked my mother, my mother would always say, we don't talk about that, you know. And then later on, as I got older, then she began to tell me, well, there was, you know, things that happened. And then when it became open more to the tribe, when the Cheyennes began to uh, work on this repatriation of the 1865 treaty, mm-hmm. then that's when the stories began to be told more. You know, you could hear them, but not from the rapos. You know, so we didn't hear very much about them. Just occasionally they would tell you a little bits here and there. And when I took this position, and when I went to Sand Creek there was no rap holes there. Hmm. There was no stories of rap holes. It was totally Cheyenne. And when I asked them, where are the rap holes? They looked at me like, we don't know what you're talking about. But I had always heard these stories growing up, and I always heard these elders tell me, you know what, they were there, you know, the the, the rap holes was there, talked about chief left hand and And there was those survivors that made it to Oklahoma, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and and their families had stories. So when I start to have meetings in the communities, the rapo communities, and talk to them, I would talk to them, tell them what I was doing. They would all sit patiently and listen to me and everything, but they wouldn't say anything in front of the other people. But when they see me off by myself, then they would come to me and say, my great-great-grandmother was there or my great-great-grandfather was there or I'm related to this person. You know, that's how I began to hear who was there. And that's how I got the list that went on the um, Sand Creek Memorial
5: hmm.
1: of rapos. Because if you look at the treaties and, and the war chronicles, there is no listing of rapos.
0: And help us understand why that might have been, why one people who experienced this, the Cheyenne, in a way had been, for lack of a better way of putting it, better represented in that. Yes.
1: They are more outspoken than the
0: Raphos are. We don't say much about these things. So that had to be drawn out and you helped draw that out. Yes. Yeah. Yes. I have,
1: it took some work to get these stories
0: I mentioned earlier that you use the word genocide when you talk about yes. the Sand Creek Massacre. Tell me what that word means to you. To me, when it pertains to the Sand Creek Massacre,
1: even you know the, the proclamations of the governor is basically opening up the country to kill all the Indians they can and take their property. That's the second proclamation. And this was before Sand Creek Mm-hmm. So anybody in Colorado could have killed any Indians and took their property as payment.
0: And so you see Sand Creek in this context of the larger, the larger truth. Yes.
1: But they, they attacked with the intent of wiping them completely out. And they chased them. You remember, they chased them up the river, up the creek, up the the creek bed. and, And they were killing them wherever they could find them. And they chased them. They were there for two days. The army was, and the and the militia. Um,
0: this is something that the exhibit taught me, as we'll hear shortly, which is that the massacre. It, I mean, it really lasted a very long time. The barbarism lasted a long yes. time.
1: Yes, mm-hmm. yes. There's the chief down here. Chief Spotted Wolf, Patrick Spotted Wolf is his name, and his great grandfather came with had a band, a family band that came through Sand Creek the evening before Sand Creek happened. And they came through, but they said that there was no food, no water there. So they continued on kind of to the southeast towards where Little Raven was. So they were going that way, and they camped a ways away from Sand Creek. And his story is that they heard the battle raging, and they went back and looked, and they seen where the atrocities had taken place, and then they turned around and went on back to Little Raven's Camp, and that's how the word got to the Arapahoe's that this had taken place.
0: This is History Colorado's second attempt at discussing the Sand Creek Massacre. In 2012, it mounted an exhibit without consulting the Arapaho and Cheyenne. Uh, It it was so off-base that it closed down. Um, this time, the tribes were integral to the storytelling. Yes. What is the, I don't know, most important lesson you hope visitors take away?
1: I don't know what what the main thing would be. Maybe to educate people on who the Cheyenne and the Arapahos were. Mm-hmm. And are. And are today, yes.
0: We We were simple people.
1: We were living there. We were not at war with the United States government or the Colorado people there. You know, we were told by a treaty that this is where we'd live. They were to pass through but not stay. And so I think it shows that we were there and we were trying to make peace, but we were not allowed to have peace. Instead, we were lied to and part of our tribe. Was totally wiped out.
0: I am so glad that you mentioned that this is not just the exhibit solely about the Sand Creek massacre, but that it is about the Arapaho and Cheyenne cultures as yes. they as they flourished before, and as they thrive today. And in fact, the the first displays highlight these cultures. Yes. It, it almost feels like you're introducing us to the people who were killed. And I wonder if you'd do something for us now. There is a section of the exhibit about the four hills of life. Yes. Will you tell us what the four hills of life are? In the Ruppel life lifespan, it's described or it's broken
1: into four different areas. And each one, certain things take
0: place during that time. They are a lens through which to see the progression of a life and uh, a lens in this exhibit to understand the culture of the Arapaho. Right. Uh, Which hill are you in? I will be in the uh, last one. Okay, you're in four. Yes, the old age society now. Fred, thank you for setting up the exhibit for us. I feel grateful to have seen it and. Uh, that listeners will have the opportunity to do so along with me. Thanks for your time and your energy.
1: Sure. I'm, I'm glad, you know, one of the things I always wanted to do when I was put into this position was to educate. You know, because I go to Colorado. We, we used to hear these stories of the Colorado, how it was our home. When we get there, nobody knew who we were. They, they seen the street signs the name of the mountains, and the valleys. But they didn't know who the hole were.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Kind of amused at it, then kind of shocked at it, and then kind of saddened by it. Because they still held on to the names. But we had been so far removed that they didn't have no idea who we were. Of
0: the people, because of displacement. Of the people, yes. yeah, Yeah. So your physical presence in Colorado... <laughs> It says a lot yes. when you're here. Uh-huh. And you step into places that are named Arapahoe County. And, and, and then, you know, we go,
1: go down through Denver, you know, and you see Cherry Creek. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's named Cherry Creek, but we knew it as Ninemnichah, Fat River.
0: Was that Fat you know, we, Fat River, Fred? Yes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Fat River. It was so named because when they went into the area, the choke cherries were blooming. The white blooms were just hanging down off the tree, and it reminded them of fat, buffalo fat. Mm-hmm. So when we say that, Ni Nen, that's that fat, buffalo fat. And Ni Cha
0: is river. Well, thanks again. And uh, that's just more proof of what an educator you are. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I try. Fred Musquita, tribal historian with the Southern Arapaho. He's a descendant of the Sand Creek Massacre. After a break, I'll walk through the new exhibit at History Colorado titled The Betrayal That Changed Cheyenne and Arapaho People Forever. And you will hear the shortcomings of my own history education. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
1: I don't speak Spanish when I go um, to the pandaria to get snacks, they speak to me in In Spanish, the
3: first please, season know. of ¿Quién Are We you heard from a whole lot of people about their passions, relationships. I was so happy, I was so impressed with you and you And did. maybe you heard yourself in their stories. So, and then I'm not even gonna lie to you, one time Ian like was, you know, let's break out the huevo. let's maybe somebody gave him evil eye. So... The first season of ¿Quién Are We everywhere you listen.
0: We've just passed the 158th anniversary of the Sand Creek Massacre, the deadliest day in Colorado history. Now to History Colorado Center in Denver, where there's a new exhibit, which calls the massacre the betrayal that changed Cheyenne and Arapaho people forever. Our guide is lead curator Sam Bach, whose graduate work, by the way, focused on indigenous history. A note, some of his descriptions are really graphic. Hi again, Sam. Hey Ryan. You know, early Denver settlers can be painted with a glow of admiration for their pioneer spirit. And here we read the illegal city of Denver. I'm already getting the sense that this exhibit will turn the history so many of us have been taught on its head.
2: Well, you know, we really were taking our lead from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribal representatives that we worked with to put together this exhibit. And we took seriously the responsibility that they gave us to tell this story as they wanted it told, as they would tell it. And from their perspective, you know, you can imagine you're standing in your own home that was guaranteed to be yours by treaty. You know These treaties are the supreme law of the land. And then suddenly people are coming to your home and telling you that you need to leave and establishing a permanent city where you usually live. So from their perspective, it was an illegal
0: city. It was an illegal settlement. Now the Sand Creek Massacre takes place south and east of Denver, but why was it important to also center this exhibition in in a population center like Denver.
2: Yeah, well, you know, even though the Sand Creek Massacre happened hundreds of miles away, almost all of the other events surrounding the massacre happened here in Denver. So the political leaders, the military leaders, the army, they were all headquartered here, and the peace conference that preceded the massacre, where The Cheyenne and Arapaho people were told to go camp on Sand Creek. You know, they were told that you would be safe here, you would be seen as non-threatening and friendly and wanting peace. That conference happened here in Denver. So aside from just the obvious, you know, people can make it to Denver more easily. It's the biggest population center in the state. It was such an important part of this story and the land we're standing on right now had dead body parts paraded past, you know, almost to the exact spot in 1864 following the massacre. so Uh, Some sort
0: of sick parade.
2: It was a horrible parade of atrocities. And and these were body parts that were taken from Cheyenne and Arapaho people, some of whom weren't even dead. And they were brought back as victory trophies. And in fact, they were put on display in what was then the Denver Theater
0: as just this gruesome display of, of victory and of conquest. I'm hearing that detail for the first time. What does that tell me about my education, do you think? Well, I think that a lot of our
2: educations are incomplete when it comes to the Sand Creek Massacre, not only because it's part of this much longer history of intentionally ignoring or looking away from the darker sides of our past, but also because it's extremely unpleasant to talk about. And, and this goes for the Cheyenne and Arapaho representatives we worked with as well. Mm. You know, they say all the time that it, it was hard to get my grandmother and my grandfather to talk about the St. Greek Massacre and to tell me the stories they heard from their grandparents because it's so tragic and it's so senseless and the violence is just so shocking.
0: Are you saying that those are conversations that happened in advance of this exhibit or those are just the sorts of family conversations that had been happening for generations but that were always difficult?
2: Both, actually. We created this exhibition in deep consultation and in deep partnership with the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes. They designated representatives who are historians, who are elders, who are tribal representatives, you know, who work for the tribes, to tell the story in the way that it was told to them. And so in that way, this exhibit presents the stories that have been passed down for generations among Cheyenne and Arapaho people.
0: All right, November 1864, about 750, Arapaho and Cheyenne set up camp outside Fort Lyon, indeed in Eastern Colorado, north of what's now Lamar. As you just said, they were told to be there, why?
2: Well, at the Camp Weld Conference, which happened here in Denver, it was a peace conference between leaders from the Cheyenne and Arapaho tribes, um, including many chiefs, as well as representatives from Colorado state government and the military here in Colorado, including John Shivington.
0: You call it a peace conference. So the entire conceit of it is that there might be peace. Yeah. In fact,
2: Cheyenne Chief Black Kettle wrote a letter with George Bent's help to the commander of Fort Lyon asking for a peace conference between himself and the other leaders in Denver. And the upshot of that peace conference was that John Evans told any Cheyenne and Arapaho leaders who wanted to remain peaceful, who did not want to fight the US government, to go camp underneath a white flag and a US flag near Fort Lyon. And so they went to uh, what was then Big Sandy Creek, and they were flying the flags in their camps. And you know they really thought that the, the military was going to be there to protect them mm. and to be giving them rations.
0: Were they indeed parked under a white
2: flag? That's what the tribal accounts that we base this exhibition uh, tell us. And in fact, we have some representations of that here in the exhibit. Was it a setup, Sam? It was a betrayal. That's the way our representatives have asked us to present this information. And I think it's a really accurate It's a really accurate phrase for the way the Cheyenne and Arapaho people felt about it at that time. You know, they had given up their weapons, they had given up so much land, and they were where they were told to be in order to be peaceful, and then they were betrayed.
0: And they'd been betrayed so many times before, if you think of the treaties.
2: Certainly, yeah, going at least back to 1851, um, but even further back than that, certainly.
0: The betrayal that changed Cheyenne and Arapaho people forever Those are the words that greet us. Next to what?
2: This is a photograph of an elk hide painting by Eugene Ridgely Sr. He's an artist from the Northern Arapaho tribe. And what visitors will see here are images drawn from the oral histories of the Northern Arapaho tribe about the Sand Creek Massacre.
0: And so what you're seeing are a collection of teepees, and then interspersed are... As you look carefully, some rather gruesome scenes. That appears to be a dead mother holding her child. It's unclear whether the child is alive. Someone who has been mutilated.
2: To set the scene, you've got to think about the plains of eastern Colorado in November. And particularly after a snowy, frigidly cold week like the one we've just had, actually. The ground was covered in snow. There was... Not a lot of food around, you know, the herds, the bison herds and the other game had been you know, driven away by soldiers and people coming and going. So you've got a lot of hungry, anxious people. They awoke in the morning to the sound of hoofbeats and they thought that perhaps it was a bison herd coming through or some soldiers had come from the fort to deliver the promised rations to these hungry people. But instead of being bison or friendly soldiers, they were a column of troops bent on destruction. And these troops charged the camp at daybreak. They started firing into homes, you know, into teepees with repeating rifles and pistols as the rest of their companies set up uh, mountain howitzers which were firing exploding cannonballs that sent out shrapnel that literally tore people limb from limb. The slaughter went on all day. Horrific scenes of inhuman violence, body parts being removed from living people. Accounts from soldiers at the time tell us that living babies were removed from their mother's wombs and then killed and scalped. It's every manner of inhuman atrocity that you can imagine was perpetrated at the Sand Creek Massacre.
0: I know you've given a fair number of interviews to this point. What is it like to recount that? It's
2: hard every time, but, you know, every time I talk about it, I'm reminded that there are many Cheyenne Arapaho people for whom this is an unavoidable story. It's part of their family history. So, you know, for me, I'm I'm telling this story as a historian, as someone who has studied this and learned from them, but just realizing that there are people for whom this is not something you can, you can leave at your work at the end of the day and go home and go on about your life.
0: How do you approach creating an exhibit about genocide? I mean, I wonder if you referred to say the Holocaust Museum in DC.
2: Yeah, certainly we looked around the country and around the world for, you know, visual and narrative examples of similar, similar events in history that have been movingly portrayed. However, I'd like to note that we really worked in tandem and in deep partnership with these tribes and, the, and their representatives. And so, you know,
0: we really took our lead from them. So maybe you brought back an idea or an example, but they led then the formation.
2: Exactly. And, and the way that they kept telling us was, you know, you all are the experts in how to make an exhibit. Mm-hmm. We are the experts in the Sand Creek Massacre and its history. And so we we're really able to bring those two things together.
0: One thing I do not see is bullets. There are no munitions, and I understand that's really purposeful, Sam.
2: That's exactly right. Our Cheyenne and Arapaho representatives had a meeting, just the representatives. No History Colorado representatives were allowed. Uh, We call it a tribal caucus. And it was a late-night meeting. It went on for hours. It adjourned and resumed the next day. And when it was over, they brought us in and they told us that we have decided, we, the tribal representatives, have decided... There should not be any bullets, there should not be any actual weaponry of any kind represented in this exhibit because it is too traumatizing and it could cause too much pain and hurt for Cheyenne and Arapaho people.
0: Hadn't an earlier iteration of a Sand Creek exhibit included them? It sure did. And the reason it did was that
2: that exhibit reflected insufficient consultation with these tribal representatives. And so they didn't get it right.
0: That exhibit was quickly closed because of the criticism. How else do you think this is different?
2: You know, this exhibit is different from the ground up. Every single element from the color of the walls to the content to the way that it's presented was consulted and was determined with these representatives. The color of the walls. Yeah. You know, I think the original ex- exhibition here at History Colorado about the Sand Creek Massacre was very focused on you know, what happened that day. but that's not everything about the Sand Creek Massacre and it's not everything about the Cheyenne Arapaho people. Mm -hmm. It does not define Cheyenne Arapaho people. And in fact, they are modern people with contemporary cultures and languages that they are very proud of. And so this exhibition really goes out of its way to examine Cheyenne Arapaho people and their cultures and show what their communities are doing today.
0: You know, I have noticed that the descriptive labels are written in a voice... I don't think I've ever seen before in a museum.
2: Yeah, so this is part of a new effort that History Colorado is undertaking when we work with communities who request it. And we pioneered this with the opening of the Ute Indian Museum down in Montrose. It's something that's reflected in the, uh, written on the land exhibition about the Ute people here at History Colorado. It's written in the first person, as in, we the Ute people, or we the Cheyenne and Arapaho people. Because really, the story is being told by them and mm-hmm. we wanted the voice of the exhibition to
0: reflect that. That's interesting because differently written, it is a bit othering, right? It's look at those people over there uh, in a different voice. Exactly. Uh-huh. And I
2: think it's part of a long tradition and a long history in museums that you know, we're starting to question where we other people, as you said, but also you know, alienate them and study them. Whereas these are living modern people with their own history and culture, and that's very present.
0: Among Colonel Shivington's men, there were dissenters. That is also a part of the nuanced story you are telling here. Shall we go look at that portion of the exhibit? Absolutely.
2: So we are looking at two letters written by dissenting soldiers, men who refused evil orders and did not allow the soldiers under their command, to fire on the defenseless Cheyenne and Arapaho people. At are the these the letters Bay. themselves? These are high-quality reproductions. of okay. letters. And in fact, okay. the story of the letters is very interesting of its own. Um, the original letters were copied by a government copyist, and that's what we're looking at here. The copyist was assigned to make reproductions of these letters as part of congressional and military investigations into the Sand Creek Massacre, Mm. the United States government, the Congress, and the military paused what it was doing in 1864 at the height of the Civil War to investigate the Sand Creek Massacre and the atrocities that were filtering back through these letters to D.C. It was shocking at the time. And these investigations unanimously found that this was, they called it, a foul and dastardly massacre. You know, at the time they recognized the. They same, used that word They used massacre. those words, yes, mm-hmm. absolutely. And they, they blamed John Chivington and John Evans for conducting this horrible day.
0: But as you say, there were dissenters. What do we know about them?
2: That's correct. Well, we actually know quite a bit about these dissenters. So Captain Silas Sewell and Lieutenant Joseph Kramer were two men who refused to allow their troops to fire on the Cheyenne and Arapaho camp. They found it unconscionable. They were used to combat. You know, they were, they were men who enlisted in the Union Army during the Civil War as abolitionists. They were there to fight against slavery and for the cause of the Union. They were assigned to Colorado units that were integral to protecting the newly found gold fields here in Colorado, which were going to be integral to supplying and funding the Union war effort. Hmm. They did not sign up to massacre women, children, and elderly, and they recognized the massacre for what it was at the time.
0: Did they have any power?
2: They had very little power at the time. They only had power over the men under their immediate command. And in fact, following the Sand Creek Massacre, Silas Sewell was murdered here in Denver by troops loyal to John Shivington, most likely because of the letters that he wrote and the testimony that he gave in condemning the Sand Creek Massacre.
0: There's a little bit of a dichotomy, which is that we're talking about very heavy stuff. And in the background is bird song, which is part of the exhibit. Will you talk to that?
2: Certainly, yeah. Well, the Sand Creek Massacre site is extremely sacred for Cheyenne and Arapaho people. And there is no replacement for going to the massacre site and experiencing the story there. And I encourage anyone to go. It's not too far from Denver.
0: Now a National Historic Site, exactly, correct? Yeah,
2: recently expanded, in fact. We wanted to bring a tiny piece of that experience here to Denver in order for people to really understand just a slice of what it's like to be there. And so, so the background noise you hear that really permeates the gallery, the sound of the bugs, the sound of the birds, that's all what you would hear if you are at the Sand Creek Massacre National Historic Site.
0: Recorded on site.
2: Much of it was, uh-huh. yeah. And in fact... The audio that we're hearing now is playing from what the tribal representatives asked us to call the contemplation room. So it's an area of the exhibit that is separated from the rest of the story. There's no interpretation in there, there's no artifacts, there's no. There's nothing to look at or read.
0: It's meditative in there. It's
2: a meditative space for people to gather themselves or to reflect on the Sand Creek Massacre. And these sounds really help sort of cleanse from the horrible stories that people experience here.
0: A tour of the new Sand Creek Massacre exhibit at History Colorado in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.
2: does Front Range, just where does it start and end?
5: Why does Denver sometimes smell like dog food?
2: What's the perfect seat at Red Rocks for the best sound?
5: These are the kinds of Colorado questions we've gotten and answered in the past. I'm Rachel Estabrook from the CPR Newsroom and we want to hear from you too. Ask your question at CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders. Help us all discover more about our state of wonders. CPR.org slash Colorado Wonders.
0: The U.S. Supreme Court will hear a Colorado case Monday, and the state's public accommodations law is at stake. A wedding website designer wants to be able to refuse service to same-sex couples. Colorado officials say that violates the law. CPR's Justice reporter Allison Sherry explains.
3: For website designer Lori Smith, it's not who the potential customers are wanting wedding websites. It's the message they are asking her to create that is problematic.
5: It matters not to me how an individual identifies. What's important to me is what message, what messages I'm being asked to create and design for. And those messages must be
3: consistent with my convictions. For State Attorney General Phil Weiser, Smith's business shouldn't be treated differently than any place else, be it a restaurant or a hotel or a coffee shop. In Colorado, any public business selling goods or services is prohibited from turning customers away based on who they are, even if that business is furnishing an artistic or creative product. Here is Weiser.
4: That an individual could say, because I'm offering some product or service with an expressive element. I get to exclude, and you can fill in the blank here. It could be gays or lesbians, but it could be Jews or Mormons, or it could be African-Americans, etc., etc. That would be a revolution in our law.
3: This is the tension in Colorado that has played out through two big cases in front of the nation's highest court over the last decade. In 2017, it was the Masterpiece Cake Shop.
0: We'll hear
2: argument this morning in case 16 111, Masterpiece Cake Shop versus Colorado
0: Civil Rights Commission. Ms. Wagoner?
3: You may remember this case. A gay couple, Charlie Craig and David Mullins, went into the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood to order a custom wedding cake. The owner and lead baker, Jack Phillips, declined to make that cake, citing his religion. The couple sued. This is Mullins speaking in a video made by gay rights activists.
0: This case is not about weddings. It's about the right of people to walk into a place of business and expect to receive the same service that anyone else is, regardless of who they are or who they love.
3: Ultimately, justices sided with Phillips, saying the state Civil Rights Commission did not adequately consider his religious freedoms. But they failed to address that bigger question about whether creative enterprises can legally turn away businesses they say violates their speech protections. And so here we are, five years later, with a whole new case in front of the court. Smith says the lack of certainty has kept her from fulfilling a dream. I do want to design for weddings. I've wanted to do that ever since I was a little girl in my mom's store. Smith says she has turned away wedding website business. But this case started with her suing the state because of what she wants to do, not because of some client who has forced her to do it. This dynamic has stirred criticism. A deep irony of
5: this case is it should have been rejected because there is no live dispute.
3: Elizabeth Sepper is a constitutional law professor at the University of Texas at Austin and wrote an amicus brief on behalf of Colorado. Sepper combed through Smith's previous work as a web designer and found she designed a website for a divorce lawyer, for a marijuana business, and for a rock band.
5: We use those examples to say, you know, in the normal course of commerce, we don't think that... The website designer uh, is conveying any particular message through websites. We think the owner of the website is conveying those messages.
3: But constitutional law professor Dale Carpenter at Southern Methodist University disagrees.
4: On the first question. Is it speech? I think it is speech, and I think it is her speech.
3: Even though Carpenter has spent much of his professional life advocating for gay rights, he wrote an amicus brief on behalf of Lori Smith because he thinks people shouldn't be compelled to say things they don't believe. But he thinks the court can't go too far in allowing a business to shut out gay people, or really any group of people.
4: We think the state of Colorado
1: has a a compelling objective here, and that is the equality under the law for gay people in their daily lives when they go into the public marketplace.
3: What remains to be seen is how the high court threads that needle between the various guaranteed rights under the law, a business owner's rights to pick and choose how they express themselves, and the rights of consumers to seek out a good or service without fears of discrimination. I'm Allison Sherry, CPR News.
0: In these days of social media influencers, have you ever thought about how we make decisions and why? That's at the heart of a discussion featuring Zoe Chance at the Aspen Ideas Festival this past spring. Kibwe Cooper from our Audio Innovations team brings us her insights.
5: Once upon a time, on an auspicious day in history, you were born... You had no sharp teeth or claws or any means of protecting or even feeding yourself. The only means of survival that you had was your ability to influence other people to take care of you.
4: That's Zoe Chance. She's a behavioral scientist at Yale School of Management and the author of the New York Times bestseller, influence is your superpower. Zoe believes that everyone has the power of an influencer and that power is naturally inside of all of us.
5: As you grew, you expanded your sphere of influence and you practiced. Before you got to kindergarten you were negotiating bedtimes and television desserts, all the things that you cared about. You grew and you expanded your sphere of influence further to groups and teams. You grew up and expanded your influence further still, perhaps to organizations.
4: But these days, influence is about more than just influencing the people in your immediate sphere. Social media has given billions of viewers on platforms like TikTok and Instagram inside access to the lives of celebrities and social elites. Their likes and dislikes, hearts, gifts, and emojis influence what we think of ourselves and the world around us.
5: High-impact users or influencers can charge tens of thousands of dollars per sponsored post, according to Forbes.
2: We find the average person has over 10,000 social media posts, tags, or likes associated with them, and,
4: you know,
3: that's a lot. 60% of in-store purchase decisions are influenced by something that someone has seen on a social media post or a blog post?
4: But Zoe Chance says all of us have the ability to harness the power of influence. You just have to learn how. Chance spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival back in June. Earlier in her career, Zoe managed a $200 million segment of the Barbie brand. Now, Barbie dolls have been a successful product for decades. So Zoe struggled at times to convince the senior leadership at Barbie to implement new ideas. That's when Zoe became obsessed with understanding influence. She says learning to influence others isn't difficult or rocket science, but it is a science. Zoe says if we understand the way human beings make decisions, we can better influence the decisions they make. And there's two ways we make decisions. The first involves thinking like an alligator.
5: People's minds work very much like alligators. A place in Orlando, Florida called Gatorland. Has anybody been there? Okay, a few of us. This is the gator capital of the world. They have thousands of gators. You watch gator wrestling where you can feed the gators. And I was excited. They give you a piece of meat, number of pieces of meat, and you're throwing them into a pile of gators where I thought they're gonna be fighting each other like prehistoric beasts, clash of the titans. But I don't have perfect aim. And what i found is that if you land a piece of meat even an inch outside the bite zone, which is between the nose and the tail, and what happens is nothing. Nobody moves. They wait until a bird comes down (laughs) to pick it up. If you land it in the bite zone, that gator will snap it up so quickly you can hardly see it move. Like human beings, alligators are designed for maximum cognitive efficiency. They are constantly scanning the environment, and this is like your subconscious mind lurking below the surface of your conscious awareness. They're scanning for threats and opportunities, but the dominant response is nothing, and they ignore it. They ignore almost everything around them. But when they take action, something sufficiently easy, they do so very, very rapidly.
4: So alligator thinking informs our fast decisions. But what about those times where we decide more slowly and carefully? Zoe says that the second kind of decision making is more like a human judge.
5: This is the conscious part. Slow, rational, deliberative, effortful. Considers only one case at a time. Carefully weighing pros and cons. It's cognitively difficult. So it takes mental resources to put our conscious attention on something. So we can only do one thing at a time. The gator part, though, takes almost no effort at all.
4: Zoe says there's no way to manipulate how your brain makes a decision, even if you consider yourself a careful decision maker.
5: Many smart people, like those of us in the room, are thinking, well, maybe lots of people are gator kind of people, but I'm kind of a numbers person, I'm sort of analytical, or the people that I'm trying to influence or I work with are numbers, analytical people, they're more judge people. So let's take a look at judges, actual judges. In a study of 1,100 parole decisions, Researchers, and this was taking place in Israel, I don't think the culture is relevant, but how it works in Israel is there's a panel of three judges and they make a collective decision and all day they're making decisions, hearing cases, and all the researchers were looking at in this study was the time of day and what was the likelihood a prisoner would get out on parole. At the beginning of the day, it's about a two thirds chance they go home and then that number declines, declines, there's a spike. Decline, decline again, spike, and then another decline. And let's just hear, (laughs) if you have a theory about the spikes, call it out now. (laughs) What I'm hearing here in the room is food, lunch breaks. Yes, that's all. That's all. These are judges, people. It's their job to be slow, rational, deliberative, effortful, to make decisions as objectively as they can. But like all of the rest of us, they are tremendously influenced by the gator. Researchers who study this stuff estimate that it might be 95% of all of our decisions and behavior are determined by the gator. It turns out that many of the decisions we think of as being rational are actually rationalizing with the input of the gator.
4: So if you know people make some decisions with their judge brain, but most decisions with their gator brain, Zoe believes we can better understand how to influence others. Zoe says there are two strategies to keep in mind when you're trying to influence other people's gator brains. Ease and framing. Here's how ease impacts influence.
5: Organizations that have disrupted not just their competition, but their entire industry Almost all of them have done this by innovating on the dimension of ease. To take a prime example, think about Amazon. And think about ways that Amazon has made it so freaking easy for us to buy stuff from them that at least for me, it's harder not to buy stuff from Amazon (laughs) than it is to buy stuff from them. Almost all of us are lazy almost all of the time because we're always already occupied. Our conscious brain is always already occupied.
4: If ease alone doesn't influence someone, Zoe says how you frame the idea can also be influential. Zoe recommends three types of framing that are especially effective in influencing other people.
5: And the three most powerful frames that I know are framing something as monumental, Framing something as manageable or framing something as mysterious. These are the most flexible and powerful frames um, that I think that you can practice with and teach other people.
4: Chance has written about how the title of a book by home organizing expert Marie Kondo captures all three of these influential frames. Kondo's book is called The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up. The phrase life-changing feels monumental. The word magical frames things in a mysterious way, and the phrase tidying up makes it all sound manageable. Readers embraced those ideas so much that the book sold millions of copies around the world. With strategies like these, Zoe believes we can all be influential. She says it's important to learn how to influence others because it's a huge part of how others will remember us when we're gone.
5: So influence is not rocket science, but it is a science. And it starts with this very, very simple concept that we are not, almost any of us, asking for as much or from as many people or as often as we could be or should be to be as influential as we might be. And many of us don't even realize that until we start to practice it.
4: Zoe Chance spoke at the Aspen Ideas Festival in June. To hear the full presentation, visit aspenideas.org.
0: That with CPR Audio Innovations producer Kibwe Cooper, you can hear more talks from speakers like Zoe Chance in the Aspen Ideas to Go podcast. Thanks for joining us today, and thanks to my Colorado Matters colleagues Tyler Bender, Carl Bielek, Anthony Cotton, Pete Kramer,
5: Andrea Dukakis, Rachel Estabrook, Michelle Fulcher.
1: Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro
0: Lumbrano.
2: Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. Chandra Thomas Whitfield.
4: And I'm Ryan Warner with Nell London.